0: But if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, uh, so in the church Bibles that's page uh, 77 and in the large print Bibles page 116. And tonight we're going to look at Exodus 20 uh, verses 4 to 6. We're going to think about a question tonight that links into uh, this commandment that we're looking at, the second commandment. And the question is, what do you think about when you think about God? That's what we're going to think about. What do you think about when you think about God? There's a lot of things in there, but I hope the question makes sense. But there's an island in the Pacific Ocean, uh, Tana Island, that have a very strange answer to that question. When they think about God, this is what comes to their mind. On this island, there is a group who believe that Prince Philip is divine. It's a sect called the Prince Philip Movement, and I am not joking. They genuinely think that Prince Philip is a god, rather the son of God. The movement began in the 1950s, and the tribes people have met Philip. They've flown over. He's met them. Uh, They've had exchange of gifts with him. No doubt they've worshipped him. Uh, He is their image of God. What they think about when they think of God, they think of Prince Philip. Now, in one sense, we laugh at that. It uh, It is ridiculous. I can affirm that from the scripture. Worship of Prince Philip is wrong and ridiculous and all of those things. God to them has been reduced to a mere man. Whatever you think about Prince Philip, uh, he is just a man. But all of us have to answer uh, this question, what do you think about when you think about God? And whenever we think about something other than what God has revealed to us, we reduce God in our minds and we break that second commandment. The second commandment is about not reducing God to less than what he has revealed himself to be. And we're going to see that although these tribes people we might look at and laugh at and think are ridiculous, we all do this ourselves. I'm assuming uh, it's not Prince Philip, but there are other wrong images of God that we have. Last week we saw how Israel was unique. In that it has one God. And in a polytheistic culture of many gods, uh, they were very unique. But as well as Israel being unique for having just one God, they were also unique in the fact that their God was an invisible God. In the Old Testament, nobody can see God fully. There are, if you like, glimpses of glory, but generally speaking, the God of the Bible is invisible. And this invisibleness often causes humanity a problem because we want to see with our eyes. And so the temptation has always been to make God into something that we can see. And the second commandment instructs us not to do this. Don't make God as something that you can see, don't reduce him into an image that is visible. So let's read that commandment. We'll read it in the context uh, that it's in with verses 1 to 3 uh, as well. Uh, But let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath Or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, this commandment really uh, can be looked at in two elements. Uh, First of all, linked to the command of no other gods before me, this command uh, means that we must not make any images that we worship. So even if your image is not of the Lord, we are not to worship any images of any kind. But secondly, the command means that we must not make an image of the true God, the Lord our God, and worship him that way. So we're not to make any images of any other gods, firstly, but neither are we to make any images of the Lord our God. Well, what's the difference between this command and the one before it? The one before it is uh, don't worship any other gods, and this one is don't worship images or don't make images. Well, one uh, old writer, uh, a Puritan, uh, said this, in the first commandment, worshipping a false God is forbidden. In this, worshipping the true God in a false manner. So in the first commandment, worshipping a false God is forbidden. And in this, worshipping the true God in a false manner. And although we're not to worship images of other gods, that's also excluded in the first commandment. And so the second is more likely focused more On the way that we worship the Lord our God. So, this commandment is really concerned with the way of worship. And the command to not make images is very broad in its scope. No images using it says anything in the sky, so no images of birds or of stars or planets, uh, or anything on the earth, so no images of animals or mountains, nothing in the sea. No images of fish or of whales or anything else. Why is it that God does not want us to do that? Because when we make an image of God, we diminish God in our hearts and in our minds. The God of the Bible is greater than anything in creation. Anything in the, the sky, anything in the earth, anything in the sea. He made those things He is greater than those things. We cannot diminish him to be those things. And so when we try to make an image, we're trying to fit God into our imagination. Now think about that word, imagination. What's the first part of that word? Image. image Image-ination, if you like. So when we imagine God, imagine uh, the kind of God we like, We are in our minds breaking this command by making an image. Imagination is not real. God is far greater than we can imagine. We don't need to imagine what God is like because he's shown us what he's like in his word. God gets to define who he is. Everything else is just make-believe. Now, sometimes it is true that God uses created things to draw out aspects of himself. So for example, Scripture describes God as our rock. But that's not all he is. It doesn't say, I'm a rock and I'm nothing else. Scripture describes him as a shepherd, a husband, a father. These images are given to us by God in his word. So He defines them. He says what he is like, but they are aspects of God. A rock doesn't describe the full Godhead. We don't need to imagine God. He has given us all that we need to know about him. He does not do that through sight, but really through hearing. When God appears on Mount Sinai, he is obscured but from vision by a great cloud But his voice is what is heard. And in fact, Deuteronomy chapter 4 draws this point out. It says uh, these words. The Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two on two stone tablets. There's a point being made there. You didn't see me, but you heard me. And then after this in Deuteronomy, God goes on to repeat the command, don't make images. So God tells us that, that the way to worship is not through images, but through listening to his voice. And as we come to the New Testament, we see that Jesus is called the Word of God. And he is the image of the invisible God. Our worship is now directed at him. Now, you may be thinking, well, if Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is he breaking the the second commandment? Well, no, because no man made Jesus. He's not a man-made image, is he? He is God with us. We'll see that a little bit later. But in fact, as we think of Jesus here being the image of the invisible God, even that is interesting because In the Bible, lots is said about Jesus. He's right there, all through. But we never get a description of what he looks like in the Bible. In the Gospels, we read all sorts about what he says and what he does, but we never get a description of what he looks like. And when we see uh, pictures from Hollywood of Jesus looking like he's just walked out of a beauty salon, it is made by directors and producers that just haven't read Bibles. The image we have of Jesus isn't about what does he look like. The only thing about that I can think about in the Bible that describes what he looks like was that he doesn't look like very much, which is what Isaiah talks about. But all the Bible talks about Jesus is what he says, what he does. So we'll see that as we go through. But let's see, first of all, then how does this commandment free us? The freedom of right worship. Now a major aspect to draw out of this command is that when we think of the the freedom of the commandments, it frees us because God is our creator and so God as our creator knows how we as his people can flourish. And when we were created, we were made, we read, in the image of God. So we were made to reflect what God is like. And so true freedom is not found in worshipping images, but rather in being images, as God has described to us. So we're not to worship images of God, we're to be images of God. And that's what we were made for, and that's how we are free, as we worship him as he commands. And we can only be images of God as we worship God in the way that he has designed us to worship him. Uh, Furthermore, before God gives the Ten Commandments, remember He tells us that He is the God who frees His people from slavery. And so if He is the God who frees us to worship, then the true God is the one who is to tell us how we are to do that. So free people worship God as God tells them to worship Him. And images do not free us because they can't do anything. Uh, Isaiah 44 is a, a wonderful chapter uh, a, a long chapter, which really is a a, 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 a polemic against idol worship. Uh, it's a great chapter to read on why not to worship idols, and it often is in very humorous ways describing how stupid they are. Well, here is just one verse that tells us about idols: "All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless." Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Idols are useless and worthless, and those that make them become useless and worthless. And in Romans 1, we read about how idolatry is a very dark exchange. We read of this, how humanity exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images Made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Now, God is so much more glorious and awesome than any image could ever be. So, the foolishness of making images to worship God is shown here. God is revealed through his creation, that is true. We read that a few verses earlier in Romans chapter 1. And creation reflects God, which is true but we don't worship creation. It points us to the creator. We are not to worship humans or anything else in creation. But actually what Paul is writing here in Romans is another level of foolishness than just worshipping humans and animals because he says that people worship images made to look like a mortal human being and so on. So it's, uh, just as an illustration of this, uh, some of you may have been... Uh, to Paris, and to have gone in the Louvre, the art museum. And if you go in there, you can go and see uh, the Mona Lisa. Uh, I couldn't really see it because I'm too short and it's too packed, so I couldn't reach above everybody, but I got a glimpse of the Mona Lisa. But when you go out of the Louvre, all on the streets, all around, there are postcards of the Mona Lisa. Now, if I was to pick up a postcard of the Mona Lisa... And I was to come and bring it home and go to an art dealer and say to the art dealer, how much would you give me for this postcard of the Mona Lisa? Well, the art dealer would say, well, how stupid are you? It's a postcard of the Mona Lisa. But even more stupid is what Paul talks of here. Because this is the equivalent of me taking a photocopy of the postcard of the Mona Lisa and taking the the photocopy of the postcard to the art dealer and saying, Art dealer, how much will you give me for this photocopy of the postcard of the Mona Lisa? It's just, it's ridiculous. And the art dealer would say, well, that that photocopy is worthless. And in fact, the postcard isn't really worth anything. How stupid are you? Well, in terms of how we worship, all of us have been as stupid as this. Freedom is found in worshipping the true God, and worshipping the true God is worship as the true God prescribes. We cannot be free to live as God intends when we worship useless and worthless images. They cannot free us from what enslaves us. In fact, images cannot do anything. Now, for some here this evening, you may think, this commandment's great. I get a free pass because you think, well, I'm not stupid enough to go home and start whittling a wooden image of my cat or whatever. Or you may think, I don't have any statues at home, I don't do any of this kind of thing. But hold on a minute, because all of us have suffered the failure of wrong worship. And to see this, uh, turn a few pages in your Bibles to Exodus 32, where we had our Bible reading. Um, page 90, uh, no, page 70, no, page, yeah, page 90 in the church Bibles. Uh, 136 in the large print, but just a few chapters ahead. Exodus chapter 32. It's a helpful place to go when thinking about this command. Because in this chapter, Moses has gone up to Mount Sinai to meet with God, where God is telling Moses through these commandments how to worship him. Uh, in fact, as he's up on the mountain, God's also telling him about the tabernacle to build and what that should look like so that they can worship God Uh, in that way and make the sacrifices and all those kinds of of things. And after 40 days of being up there, we come to this chapter, uh, Exodus 32. Let's read uh, just verses uh, 1 to 6 and see what happens. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, "'Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me.' So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, "'These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt.' When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So the people, after Moses has gone up on the mountain, uh, the way I understand this is that they're bored. He's been gone for ages And he's a bit of a disappointment, actually. Where where is he? We want something else, something different to help us to worship. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And so they want something new, something exciting. And so they ask Aaron to make them some new gods. And notice what this new thing is that they do in verse 2. They exchange, and I think there is a, a point to be made here, they exchange earrings adorning the instrument of hearing for an image which can be seen. They wanted something that they could see over what God has said. And what they could see was a calf, a young cow, which in verse 5 was worshipped in their own way. And notice how it replaced God, because in verse 5, what was the calf used for? to have a festival to the Lord. And Lord there is their God, the true God. So wanted, they want to use a cow to worship the Lord. They want to do something that they can, have something they can see in order to worship the Lord. And so they, 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 they worship the Lord, but in the wrong way. Now, how do we do this kind of thing? We do this when God's word is not enough for us, when God's word is no longer exciting. And so we try to worship God in a different way. Now, we can do this a lot of ways. For example, through uh, superstitions that some of us have. Uh, Traditions can not necessarily be a bad thing, but we can think, I can't worship God without the tradition We need to be careful of how we think of God. If we don't allow our thinking to be shaped by God's word, the image that we have of God in our minds will be wrong. We do this especially when we think about God's attributes that are perhaps more culturally acceptable. Our image of God is one where he is a God of love and faithfulness and justice, which are all true, but that's our image of God. And then we ignore the parts of God that are un. Uh, culturally acceptable. His wrath, his judgment, and so on. Uh, We can rely on something for being able to access God. So some people might think, well, I need a certain type of music to access God. I need that music, or I can't really worship. Or we might say, that worship leader or that preacher, he really makes me worship God. The other worship leaders, well, then they're just not as good. That's making that leader into an image. Uh, A building. I can't worship God unless I'm in this building and it has all the things in it or whatever. Uh, Certain books even can be elevated in this way. Yes, the Bible's great, but I can't really worship God unless I have this book as well. Even aids to worship can become objects of worship. So we can, uh, we, you know, we, can, we can have things that remind us of God or things that are helpful, like um, you know, if we go on a hike and you might be in creation, and you think, it helps me to think of God, and that's wonderful, but once you start to worship that and you can't worship God without that, it becomes like this calf. I need that in order to worship God. If I don't have that particular location or that particular item, I cannot worship God. And that's where... Uh, jewelry, like our crosses, can become objects of worship, uh, and so on and so forth. Now those things aren't necessarily wrong, but when they are used for, to worship, and we cannot worship God without them, they become wrong. And it's a fine line, isn't it? Because they can be helpful to help us worship God, but they can very quickly become images that we need in order to worship God. Even good things can be used to break the second commandment. So um, in Numbers chapter 21, we read the story there of the Israelites rebelling against God. uh, And God uh, sends this plague of poisonous snakes that bite the Israelites and the Israelites were dying. And so God told Moses to make a snake in Numbers 21 that the Israelites can look to so that they can be healed from the snake bites. Now they weren't to worship the snake, but the snake was used by God to help them to see that they are to look to God's provision of salvation to be saved. That's Numbers twenty-one. That snake was kept; it was a bronze snake. And by the time we get to the ta- uh, to King Hezekiah in First uh, Kings chapter eighteen, the Israelites were worshiping the snake. It was uh, I mean, God told them to make the snake. But in, in 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, we read uh, that uh, Hezekiah broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So the, the snake that was an aid of worship became an object of worship, and even a good thing that God had told them to do became something that they were using for wrong. And in the New Testament, God has given us images that help us to worship. The two that we have are, the, are baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are images that teach us the gospel in visible ways. But when we rely on either of them for salvation, we start to break the command. And throughout the history of the church, those two institutions, that, or ordinances rather, that God has given us have been used for our idol worship. So, the, the, the water for baptism becomes holy water, and the bread and the wine become the real body and blood of Jesus. And they become the breaking of the second commandment. So, what this command should have us do is to think about how we worship God and make sure that we're doing so as He asks us to, not how we design. There is great danger for us as we worship images. Because in Exodus 32 and verse 6, we read that the false worship of God led to drunken revelry. And when we try to reduce God to something we want or can see, our behavior reduces as well. Wrong worship leads to wrong behavior. Well, if we turn back to Exodus chapter 20... We'll see the seriousness of our failure outlined in verses 5 and 6. We are told there the reason why God does not want us to make images. He says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we often think of jealousy as a a bad thing. So, when we're jealous for something, uh, sometimes and often that is not good. But jealousy can also be something that is good. And the example that's best used is the jealousy that a a husband or wife has for their spouse. We looked at this a little bit last week uh, in the command to worship one God, like being a marriage, but I am jealous for my wife. I don't want to share her with somebody else. No one is going to say that that's a bad jealousy. And that's a a good thing. And that's what the kind of jealousy God has here. He's saying, I am the true God who has freed you from slavery you are wedded to me, I am a jealous God. I don't want to share you with others. And that's for our good. And an idol or an image that sets up in a way of worship is trying to steal God's glory because it's a it's a it's a pale imitation. Trying to steal the glory of the great and true God. And God will not have his glory shared. And it's for our good that it's not, because our greatest need is is to know God and to see his glory and to be in relationship with him. Worshipping an image is self-inflicted harm. And so it's a good thing that God is a jealous God. But the seriousness is seen because it says here that God punishes those who are image worshippers. Notice at the end of verse 5 and in verse 6, he is punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is not saying that God punishes children for their parents' sins, but rather that God punishes the children who commit the sins that their parents have committed, and their grandparents, those who hate God. The children share in their parents' punishment because the children share in their parents' sin. But what this tells us is that how we worship, the way we worship, impacts future generations. Now we can think about this in a good sense. Just think about our church here in Pelsall. Uh, We are um, coming up to 50 years old and we are standing on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and established in this church the right way to worship. Word-based, Christ-exalting. And we are not uh, admittedly their physical children, but we are a generation or two beyond them. And we are worshipping God the way we do today because they have shown us the way to do that. But on the other side, because of how we worship is so influenced by our parents, the way that we worship in the wrong way also uh, impacts future generations as they follow those ways. Now, it's not a universal rule that if we worship in the right way, therefore our children will. But usually, our children are heavily influenced by their parents. They look at how we worship. They look at what we do and the habits we have, and they imitate those. And so often, those things are lifelong habits, lifelong ways of worship. Now, again, that's not a rule that always applies, I know, But it is true to say that all of us need to be careful how we worship because our children so often will follow us, whether that is good or bad. But notice how God's love is shown in verse 6. And there's a, a, a great contrast. We've got three or four generations of those he punishes, but he's pointing out his great love to thousands. Thousands are shown His love, as they declare their allegiance to God and they keep his commandments. Now again, this doesn't mean that if um, I obey God, I I am right with God. Uh, What this means is that our allegiance to God is shown by keeping his commandments. Worshipping in the right way. Those who really love God will worship God as God commands us to. Now, however much we have failed in this by images in our mind or by needing things in order to worship God that we really don't need, God has shown us the right way to worship by sending what appears to be a contradiction, an image. The fulfillment of right worship is Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Now, remember, as I said earlier, He's not breaking the command by being an image, He's not man made. He's begotten, not created, but he, and he is fully and truly God with us. In fact, he is the fulfillment as a man of what humanity should be as they are made in the image of God. He truly reflects what God is like. And as Jesus is a man who, as we saw last week, only ever worshipped the Lord, he therefore never worshipped an image, either an image of a false God or an image of the true God. And he has come to forgive us and to free us from image worship. When the Israelites uh, in Exodus 32 worshipped the golden calf, God's anger burned in such a way that he was going to destroy Israel for the false worship. But in Exodus 32 verse 11 we read that Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God moses mediated and pleaded on behalf of the israelites and god did not destroy them and in the new testament we read that jesus mediates for us although he never broke this command or any other he died in our place so that we can have a relationship with the true and living god the only way to god it's through belief in Jesus, the one who has done all that is needed to save us. We don't need anything else to save us. Christ alone, nothing else. No other image, nothing. Jesus is enough. He has done all that is needed to save us. And so now we can be forgiven and we can worship God through worshiping Jesus. So how do we do that from now on? What is A future of right worship. Well, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit came and the church was established. And in the church of the New Testament, we see the right way to worship. The right way to worship is seen through the book of Acts, through all the letters that are written to churches to tell them how to live for God. And like Israel in Exodus, we may be tempted to have something new. We may think, well, the way that we do church is just getting a bit old and boring. Maybe we should do something else. Maybe we should try something new and novel. But God's old and well worn paths are still the way of worship today. Worship is to be word based and Christ exalting. And so we preach, we sing, we share materially, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we baptize people, we pray, we live together as a family and and as a witness to the world. All according to how God has directed us in His Word. And although uh, we might sometimes think that that sounds a bit boring, it is actually the most exciting way to live that is possible to live. Because it's how we are free to live, how we're made to live. Now, that's not to say that we cannot change our order of service, or we cannot have new songs, or we cannot do things differently, but different. Must be different to novel. Different must be something that is still clearly prescribed in the Word of God. So we don't uh, come to worship God uh, with a a great light show with sound effects and all these kind of things. I'm sure those things are great. uh, But in church, we come, we worship through His Word. We're not here to entertain, we're here to worship. And what we do must have a gravity, a weightiness to it, because our God is a God of glory, a God God almighty who we come to worship. Word-based, Christ-exalting. Now we can do different ways of, of our service and so on, don't get me wrong, but they must always be things that we can look at God's word and say, this is why we're doing this. So as we close, let me ask some questions of us all, just to help us think through how we apply this command personally. So the first question, do do you long to worship God differently to how he says he wants to be worshipped? In other words, are you bored with the Bible? Second question, is there a, a physical object or a visual image that you feel you must have in order to worship God. If you don't have this image or this, this object, I can't worship. Have you got superstitions or traditions that if they were broken in some way, you just couldn't worship God? Your, your, your Christian life would fall apart. And finally, do you think right thoughts about God? Are the thoughts that you have about God drawn from the scriptures that God has given that tells us about himself? Or are you thinking, I'd rather God be this way, so I'm going to think of him like that? And as a great application, the best way that we can worship God in our thought life is to read the Bible. Not just the bits you like, but all of it. And see what the Bible says about what God says about himself. How we answer these questions impact how we worship. And as a consequence, how we worship how we live for God. So let's worship Jesus as he calls us to. Until the day comes in glory when we shall say to ourselves and to each other, you shall not make yourselves an image. But we will worship Jesus, the image of the invisible God. Well, we're going to close uh, with a hymn uh, that prays that the Lord and no other image, really, would or idols would be our vision. So let's close by standing and singing. Uh, be the